Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, J.M. Prater, and I'm joined by... Patrick Green. Did you just drop a J.M.? I did. I, I do it's that a, so you, 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 you change this shit up every time we turn the mics on. I swear to fucking see, God, see how this Jamie. Works, people? I might change it once, and you'll say every time. I probably haven't done that in a long time. You you, you changed it. We, we just did this last night, and you were Jamie Prater. You're going to be fucking MJ next. You're going to be like, this is this is MJ Prater. <laughs> J.M.P. <laughs> J.M.P. And I'm DJ Pity. Peace. It's funny because they used to call my dad when I was growing up GP, and they used to call my mom P at the commune we were living in. And they called you. They called you. They called you PP. Some people. <laughs> oh, I should. I will never tell you my uh, the name they called me when I was a little boy, like a toddler, like Jude's age. Oh God! They used to have this pet name for me, like everybody did. The whole commune. It was awful. Are you gonna leave us with that? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you off the air. Fair enough. So you ready so, for this shit? Well, we got a big episode tonight, man. We have a big episode. This episode has been 15 years in the making. This has been Patrick so long. Thinking about this episode when he was 38, he is now uh, 68, and we're. <laughs> but no, like I'm excited. This is our Alien Three episode. Essentially, actually, it's our Alien, the score of Alien Three, which is a masterpiece of a score. Is one of the best scores that I've owned that I own and I listen to it every week, maybe multiple times a week. It's phenomenal. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about Patreon. Yeah, let's do it. So uh, we've had a huge uptick lately, as we mentioned the last couple of times. Thank you to everybody. Jamie's going to read out all of our new patrons' names in a second. And just a quick reminder, if you want to support the show, help us get more audio projects done, help us do more content, help us potentially do a live event. Um, you can join our Patreon right now at perfectorganism.com forward slash support, or you can go to Patreon and search for Perfect Organism. And for just $2 a month, you get access to two other shows that we only do on Patreon, Shit Show, which was a big hit, <laughs> their first episode, and Frame Rate, which is a film discussion show. And there are many perks at tiers above that as well. But if you want, you can just come at $2 and you will be a big part of the show in the future. We'll uh, rest on your shoulders. So thank you so much. You want to read the names off? Yes, uh, let's go down the list. So these are new patrons that we've had or we've received or whatever you want to call it since in the month of January. Um, the first one is Jonas Holmson. Thank you so much, Jonas. Tim Lawson, Ryan Zaid, who was an original host of Shoulder... Of, He's a fucking sorry, OG. Of Perfect Organism. I almost said Shoulder Ryan, but he was that. He was that well. too, so it doesn't matter, yeah. Murray Kirchaway. I hope I'm not butchering your name. Thank you so much. Your awesome Murray was at our event for Shoulder of Orion. Patrick's laughing at me. What's wrong? What the fuck did you just say his name was? Kuchere. Kuchere? Kucharawi. It's Kucharawi. Kuchere- 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 Kuchere-
I'm sorry, Murray. I'm sorry. Kuch- Murray, Murray's a fucking Kuchara- awesome person. Kuchara- and so are we? W- one of us is butchering your name right now, and I apologize because you are a wonderful Murray, friend. With that last name, he's probably from the Congo. <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like albino. Um, <laughs> Reno D, thank you so what much. Up? Daniel Purple Tree, thank you. Chase Cupo, thank you so much. Travis Anderson and our good friend Mark Decker. Mark, Marky just- Mark. He is a man and a half. He is an, a phenomenal person who we've got to know, who we all met uh, at our Shoulder of Orion event in November. So thank you guys so much for signing up and supporting us. You know, Patrick, you mentioned something that was a really good idea. I mean, a live event. That's interesting. Wouldn't that idea. be cool? That'd be really cool. Hmm. And maybe it's going to happen. Who knows? Stay tuned. We will see. A couple of years, maybe? A couple yeah. years. Well, speaking of a couple of years, uh, well, it might be sooner than that, but we'll see. Speaking of a couple of years... This episode, as Jamie mentioned, has been a long time in the making. When we first did our In Defense of Alien 3 series, which was a couple of years ago, it was the first time we'd ever tried that format of doing an extended series of shows. We didn't really know if people like had an appetite for that, so we kind of had planned it being a little bit shorter, and we were going to end it with this episode. The first time around, we wanted to end it with this, and I was pulling every string I had to get Elliot Goldenthal on the show. Unfortunately, he was very busy. It didn't work out. And I was kind of disheartened by that because I'm obsessed with his music. And um, we kind of decided, you know, we'll put it off and we'll come back to it at some point. And then in the intervening time, we've done all of these other extended series. We've done all this other shit. And gradually, I was getting more and more intimidated by the idea of tackling my, what is actually my favorite film score of 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 all time. The Alien 3 soundtrack is my favorite movie music ever. And that includes Vangelis' music for Blade Runner. Which is obviously, you know, the next favorite. But Alien 3 to me is above and beyond anything else. And I say that as a fan. I say that as a professional composer myself, as somebody who has studied music my entire life. Uh, the I think that the music in Alien 3 is an extraordinary statement of artistic depth and profound understanding of the way sound can influence us. And I just, and I, I, you know, we were, we've been talking about doing this show forever and I kept kind of putting it off and making up excuses. No, I'm not ready. No, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Two years. Two years, y'all. Yeah, literally two years. Let's do it. No, no, no. Are you sure? Are you sure? No, no, I can't. I can't. I can't. And you know what? And here we are tonight. We got, you know, my kids are sick. Jamie's television's falling off his wall. We don't give a (laughs) shit. We're still going to do this episode tonight. And I am so excited to, uh, to get into it with you. So before we get into the bulk of the episode, Jamie, what are your like high level thoughts on the score for Alien 3? Well, uh, much like you, I it's just a unimpeachable, unmitigated masterpiece. Absolutely. There's there's not a flaw in it. It is a perfect thing. The score for Alien 3, I heard before I saw it the film. I could not see the film as everybody knows when I was 16 and but I was able to listen to the score. So I remember hearing that Fox fanfare and that and it changed it a little bit. And I was like, in my head, I was like, Oh shit, what's happening? Like, so I'm experiencing this dark, dark music, not knowing what was happening in the movie. So I fell in love with it. I fell in love with it. And it's not typical of me. If I fall in love with a score, I typically love the film. I don't, there's not a movie that where I love the score, but I don't like the film. Um, the score for Alien 3 is a character in its own. It's it's a voice of its own, much like the original. It is a voice unto itself. It is the voice of Alien 3. It is a character that is alongside Ripley, cradling her as she, 
you know, moves through her tragedy. Um, it is a beautiful thing. And yeah, I know we're going to get into it more, but it's just, uh, it's always hit me very profoundly. Um, and even the, the names of it, the, the, it's very classical, very Latin, very haunting, but we'll get into that more. So but that's my first experience. And then I saw the film. It's funny you mentioned the the Latin aspect and the, and the fact that there are I mean there's literally excerpts from the Roman Catholic Mass in this and I I think so I don't want to get into the music yet but part of that is because Elliot Goldenthal has does that with a lot of his film scores because his uh, he was raised you know with a, with a with a Catholic parent in the church and things and like getting to hear that all the time and it influenced and made its way into his music but it's interesting because of course earlier drafts of Alien Three like Vincent Ward's draft set this in a monastery right. And this idea of ancient religion, but in outer space amongst the stars is something that I think that the music in this sounds like. It sounds so rapturous and so uh, – it sounds like religious ecstasy, but in some sort of horrible future that's beautiful and you can't look away from it, you know? But before we get into that more, um, I want to give a little bit of a of a rundown on Elliot Goldenthal's life and how he got into this stuff. Because he has a very non-traditional career, I think, in a lot of ways as a film composer. And um, – and I, I will try not to be annoying about it as we go by, but but one of my favorite things about Elliot Goldenthal is how closely his um, like musical journey, at least in terms of education and the things that he gravitated to in his twenties and thirties, has really mirrored mine in a lot of ways. And it's not an accident. It's because when I was you know coming up as a composing student, Elliot Goldenthal was what I was listening to like all the time, and I kept wanting to emulate what he was doing stylistically, and I was just ravenous with his film scores, and I wanted to have a career similar to his. And who knows, maybe I still. <laughs> will someday we'll see if that ever happens but but let me ask you this yeah. before you continue yeah. what was your favorite score before alien 3 before you i know you were young i don't know how old you were we can get into that when you first heard the score or maybe it was when you saw the film but what what did you what was your like score that was high up there for you as like a kid as a young kid yeah or yeah before before alien 3 and, and before blade yeah. runner and all that stuff i mean because because yeah. the, the time in my life when i got into alien 3 was after the time that I got into Alien and Aliens. That was when I was probably ten or eleven, and um, and and I I was not in love with the music at that point. Probably because it was so scary, I couldn't really quite get my head around a lot of it. Um, and uh, before that, I would say what I listened to the most was easily John Williams' Star Wars music. I think that was for me that was like what the movies sounded like. Um, and part of me still feels like that is what the the movies with a capital M sounds like because those are such you know definitive scores i think but um as soon as i kind of got alien 3 and as my musical aptitude got to a place where i could appreciate what what golden fall was doing harmonically i just really latched onto it and i just remember so many times of sitting there alone in the basement watching alien 3 and just weeping with ripley at the end of the movie as that incredible final cue was going and just like feeling like ellie goldenthal had achieved something so incredibly profound and so experimental and so difficult and just dreaming that someday I could touch a bit of that, you know, with my own music. And, and, and I, I, I haven't yet, but it's something that is a goal. It's something that like every time I set out to write something, he's one of a handful of composers that I consider as like, if I could, you know, pull off some of that stuff, I would have done a really great job. So uh, well, how about you? What was, what was the first film score that you really fell in love with when you were, when you were young? Well, I think like you, I was, I've always been listening to scores, uh, even as a, a younger kid, like I started getting into musical soundtracks 
at like 14 because my grandmother took me to see The Phantom of the Opera. So The Phantom of the Opera by Andrew Lloyd Webber was the first soundtrack I was listening to over and over. Actually, before I had one that I was going to mention. The first score that I started listening to obsessively was The Mission by Ennio Morricone. Um, oh, over yeah. and over every day. Over and over. I just beautiful, beautiful. But then the second score after that would be Last of the Mohicans by Trevor Jones. The score for Last of the Mohicans just blew me away. It was beautiful. It was lyrical. It was melodic. I love melody. You know this. I love melody. If music doesn't have a good melody, you won't find me listening to it. It has to have a good melody. It has to lift me up. It has to be something that I haven't heard before. So typically, a lot of the music, even some of the groups I listen to, like Iron and Wine um, and uh, Early U2, uh, Early to Mid U2, um, Enya, of course, it's strong in melody, strong in melody. And uh, the scores are the same way for me. So certainly those two were my first scores. Interesting. And of course, he also did The Dark Crystal, which... uh... I'm sure yes, it didn't he hurt. Did. Yeah. But I didn't start listening to the Dark Crystal score until after, oddly enough. I was just watching really? the movie obsessively. I didn't start really listening to the score for the Dark Crystal until I was in my 20s. Interesting. I don't know why. The, I just, there was one day I'm like, why don't I have this score? And I bought it. The, it's interesting that the score for Alien 3 to me provides very few handholds for listeners. Um, and I mm-hmm. think that maybe that's part of why it's not something that like, a, I, I mean, when I play it in the car, the kids absolutely hate it. They think it's the scariest thing they've ever heard. And they want me to turn it off. Um, because even when it's beautiful and lyrical, and even when there are melodies in it, which it's, it's funny, I, I know that you love the score, obviously. But in terms of melodic content, there's really not that much. There, there are there are melodies in the in the music, but the textures are so dense that uh, it's 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 I think really quite hard to find. There is though. There's lento. There's adagio. There's so much melody, but it's not traditional. It's yeah. It, it forges it's, its own vocabulary melodically. I'd yeah, say yeah. Yeah. It's something you really have to be listening for because there's always even in, in moments of stasis in moments like lento, there's uh it's there's a lot going on in the texture you know anyway before we get more into this because we're about to talk about this shit for a long time let's give the listeners a little kind of peek into elliot goldenthal's life and how he got into the project so he was born in 1954 in brooklyn new york um early on he was doing a lot of different musical projects uh, he was playing in blues bands he sang in a blues band he played piano and he trump and played trumpet and he composed a ballet in high school which was uh, actually a big sort of gateway for him because people uh, heard that he had done it and by way of this ballet, he was introduced to none other than fucking Leonard Bernstein, who's a pretty good person to get introduced to if you're an aspiring musician. <laughs> and Leonard Bernstein introduced him to Aaron Copeland. And Aaron Copeland was his gateway into the Manhattan School of Music, where he studied with Aaron Copeland and John Corleano. So a couple of just brief words. I, I think if you look at the music of Aaron Copeland and the music of John Corleano, you'll see that there's not a huge amount in common with the music of Elliot Goldenthal. But what they do have in common is an is a real affinity for communicating emotionally with their music and a completely non-judgmental approach to film scoring. Because in a lot of classical music circles, there is a big taboo with film scores. It's something that's seen as kind of slumming it, um, which I do not agree with and I don't subscribe to. But I heard that a lot in grad school, you know, people saying like, well, if I can't do this, I guess I'll just write a film score or something like that, which is ridiculous because it's a huge challenge in and of itself. But Aaron Copeland, especially, he's one of the titans of 20th century music. Everybody's heard, you know, his Appalachian suite. Everybody's heard his dance, his ballets and things like that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I feel like uh, Appalachian Spring is one I was thinking of earlier. It's like the soundtrack of mid 20th century Americana. And mm-hmm. um, I love that, especially the old Appalachian um, hymns, mm-hmm. church hymns, where there, um, there's a certain style where it's all acapella. Gorgeous. I listen to that kind of music all the time. Yeah, rustic I have a whole and album full of it. Nice, yes. nice, yeah. It's called something, though. It's the, the, the form, that type of style. Or that farewell, da, da, I'm going home. Da, 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 yeah, like folk, folk hymns, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. It's featured also in the film Cold Mountain, which is a, a gorgeous soundtrack. Actually, that's a film that I don't really like, and I love the score. I have, so. I never, I never saw it when it came out. Maybe I will. It's worth seeing. You should totally see it. Um, but anyway, so so Aaron Aaron Copeland was like a, a perfect person for him to study with because he was totally, you know, was he did not have any judgmentalism over, you know, using different forms. He was a tonal composer in an atonal era. He was somebody who was like, you know what, whatever it takes for you to be expressive, you should chase it. John Crilliano, his other teacher at Manhattan School of Music, is also, he's been teaching at Juilliard forever, uh, won an Oscar for the Red Violin film score. So John Curliano, who is a very serious, very kind of highbrow contemporary classical composer, he's won the Grabermeyer, he's won Pulitzers, he is a huge deal in very serious quote-unquote music circles, also composed an Academy Award-winning film score. And um, they both saw in him this aptitude for film scoring, and they encouraged him to try it out. And sure enough, uh, he went places pretty quickly and then had a little bit of a detour. But I wanted to read a a brief quote. this was from an interview that he did a, a, a few years back. Goldenthal says, During the period when I was a student, I was working in all of the musical arenas, including theater and concert staging. John Quiliano, as well as Aaron Copeland, encouraged me to work within that arena because it was a healthy thing to do. There are different challenges and techniques to scoring, both for films and the concert hall. There have been quite a few composers who have done it successfully, many more than you would think. Prokofiev composed over 30 film scores, and of course, Copeland composed many scores himself. End quote. And that's totally true. You look back at 20th century music and these huge figures, people like Shostakovich, they were writing film music too. It's just not the kind of stuff that has like survived outside of the concert hall. Anyway, that was the tradition that he was grown up in and he was uh, excited to embark on a film career. His first film was a completely forgotten indie picture called Cocaine Cowboys that came out in 1979. Um, it was shot on Andy Warhol's summer house. <laughs> it was just this kind of like, you know, ragtag thing that everybody hated. Uh, but it was, it was work. And he teamed up again with the same director um, just right after that, basically, and made another film that was kind of forgotten about, set in the sort of Andy Warhol circle. And then 10 years go by. And during that 10 years, he meets Julie Taymor, who's been his partner now for almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he did the score for Titus, didn't he? Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're it... getting there, bitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, they've done they've done a lot of stuff together. But early on, it was all stage work because Julie Tamer, of course, is was known before her movies as being one of the preeminent stage her, directors. Way, but we'll get into that at some point. Oh, you want to get into that? Well, she's no, she's still into... she's still working. There's there's been uh, there's been drama, but she's still going. But we will yeah, <laughs> we, we will bookmark that for later. Uh they did a lot of film project, a lot of uh, theater projects together. He was really active in New York. And then um, kind of just on a fluke, after 10 years in 1989, he makes Drugstore Cowboys score. 
and immediately after that writes the score to Pet Cemetery. So these two enormous films from 1989, both scored by Elliot Goldenthal, who hadn't done a movie in 10 years. Um, and of course, three years later, he would come out with uh, Alien 3 because of the strength of his work on Pet Cemetery. That was what uh, got him referred via the producer um, to work with David Fincher on the score for Alien 3. Um, my personal highlights... Uh, I, I can share with listeners, then if you have any you want to add to it. But in terms of his output, other things to listen to, I think the score for Heat is incredible from 1995, Michael Mann. A, a it's just a fucking amazing movie. But uh, the score that Goldenthal created for it is super different from other things that he's done. It's got a lot of guitars that are layered very densely in it. It's very cerebral, but uses the idioms of rock music. So it sounds mm-hmm. like a very confusing, um, very uh, kind of kaleidoscopic score. It's amazing. Well, it's interesting. I remember buying that score, and there's this one track that I loved that I listen to still, and it's amazing. And it's not by Ellen Goldenthal. It's by Moby called God Moving Over the Face of the Water. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, the beautiful. Sa- the soundtrack, if you buy the soundtrack, comes with a number of other singles from other artists, too, and the, and the Goldenthal score is, is kind of in there. Um, but uh, my my second favorite score by him of all time, second to Alien 3, is the score for Titus from 1999, which, as you mentioned, Julie Tamer directed. I think that is one of the great underrated film scores. The film itself is crazy, and, you know, I, I don't know I don't it's know gorgeous. if I love it or not, but I think it's gorgeous. an extraordinary movie. I don't know what I think about it either, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, 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 story, the, the Shakespeare play is just so fucked up, it's almost hard to, uh, mm-hmm. to watch no matter what. And the and it's so avant garde and it's so expressive, but the music is just it's like the score for Alien Three, but somehow even crazier. It's so mm-hmm. expressive and so it's like ripping itself apart at the seams the entire film. It's an incredible. People listening to this, if you like the Alien Three soundtrack, get the soundtrack for Titus, the one with Anthony Hopkins. It will fucking change what you think a movie score can sound like. It is incredible. And then lastly, I just want to say the score for Frida in 2002, which won Elliot Goldenthal his own Academy Award. Yes. And yeah. uh, he got the Oscar that year. And it was it's totally different. It's very melodic. It uses folk instruments. It uses Mexican musical idioms. And it shows, again, that same thing that Aaron Copeland and John Carigliano and the people in Manhattan saw in him, which is that he could basically try anything and be good at it because he was enthusiastic and he wasn't judging whatever project he was on. So the score for Frida sounds comparatively, I mean, to Titus from three years earlier, super naive, right? It sounds so uh, simple, and yet it's just as expressive and just as beautiful and is really extraordinary. Are there any uh, any in there that I missed or anything you want to say about, about his work? Um, no. Um, I mean, not that I... He's not a composer i mean i listen to of course alien 3 all the time but um i i listen to so many scores by so many different they're probably the only only composer that i happen to have a lot of scores because he makes a lot of great music is han zimmer um so i haven't listened to i have listened to other goldenthal's scores but they don't come to mind melodically like i can sing you parts of alien 3 right now if i wanted to um but i can't I don't remember the score for Titus. I mean, I do, but I don't. You know, I remember it in context of the film. Um, but I think you pretty much covered it all. I mean, he's a master of his craft. He can do anything, anything. 
He really can. And 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 you can see it, you know, he of course he did across the universe with his wife. He did the arrangements of the Beatles songs for that and they're fucking mm-hmm. brilliant arrangements too. Like he really for such a cerebral, intellectual, dense composer, he has no issues uh kind of going with his heart first and doing things that are very simple too. And I, and I think part of the strength of the score for Alien 3 is when he allows those two things to coexist. Um a little bit of background before we get into the kind of track by track conversation, just about the score itself and how it came to be, because I think it's the story of the score for Alien 3 is almost as interesting as the story of the film itself, which earlier in the series, of course, you know, we went through pretty exhaustively. Um, <clears throat> so he was brought on because of Pet Cemetery, right? And then Alien 3, as everybody knows, took forever to edit, it took over a year. Um, and that's not even other post-production stuff. That's just editing the movie. It was just this, it was such a protracted process getting this film made. Uh, but because he was already hired, he had basically a whole year to just think about what he wanted to do with the score. And so over that time, he spent a lot of time in Los Angeles with David Fincher, and they were going back and forth on what this could sound like. And these are two people who at this point were really kind of at the beginning of their serious careers in film. They were eager to try new stuff out. Uh, that same kind of commitment to avant-gardism that Fincher brought to Alien 3, Goldenthal was bringing to the music. And they were talking a lot about trying to explore atmosphere, that this was going to be a score composed of dense blocks of sounds that would accrete with each other and they would build up and they would obscure themselves. And so it would be very hard to pick out exactly what was going on at any given point. And that would lead to this, you know, suspenseful, this um, suspenseful character. It would make it hard to predict where the film was going and it would make it hard to feel settled. Um, and I think that that's part of why it sounds so different from the, the two preceding films in the franchise. I think there is uh, so such a, a smaller emphasis on melody and such a, a smaller emphasis on uh, simplicity. And every single element, every single thing, because it had so much time to develop, is so densely crafted that depending on what part of the spectrum you're listening to, you're always hearing something new. And for me as a musician... Listening to the score is just like a an endless treat because I'm always hearing new things in it. Even when I think I've memorized stuff, and I, I have the actual sheet music too, and I and I will listen to it with the actual cues um, in in my hand. And there's shit in there that I I have never seen before sometimes, and I'm it's 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 an extraordinarily dense document. Um, but I will say that a something that I think it has in common with at least Goldsmith's score is, as people remember when we talked about Goldsmith's score in the Alien series, uh, for the music of LV-426, Goldsmith did this really awesome stuff where he used all these kind of disembodied strange sounds. Remember that? With like the serpent flute uh, and this and like the, the early synth instruments. And uh, it was this wonderful kind of hazy mixture of noises that emphasized the alienness of that of that planetoid, right? And that comes back very much so in this in this score and it actually forms kind of the bedrock of it that texture of otherworldly sounds and things going all over the place to me is the defining texture of alien 3 um there aren't very many themes in it per se especially compared to the other two scores which have almost leitmotif themes in it the themes in alien 3 are for one thing they're mostly obscured by other things that are going on in the music but also a lot of them don't really reveal themselves until you kind of finish the movie and you realize like oh that was what that theme was in going through it again and taking more notes on what's going on musically, I feel like I, I identified a couple more than I had remembered from listening to it. And we'll get to that as we go by track by track. 
But uh, it's it's interesting. One of the goals that Goldenthal had was for the sound design and the musical score to be almost indistinguishable from each other. And for a lot of the moments in the score- Much like to, the original. The original score, there's a lot of that thing kind of thing going on where the music, you don't know if it's music or if it's sound. Um, you hear change, chains clinking, and then it morphs into something else. That scene that I love with the cha-chunk, cha-chunk that I always talk about- you you it you can't tell if it's score or if it's um mu- um sound effects and and goldenthal does that perfectly totally and even listening to the soundtrack there are things in there where I'm like I like it sounds like it was some sort of a uh, foley from the film but it's actually being played on instruments you know it's incredible how much it mixes together um so uh i i think um one quick note before we get into the soundtrack proper which i i encourage you if you're listening to this uh, you know, as the full podcast, pause it and and go in and out and listen to the score and come back to it because it, it'll I think it'll help kind of enrich the conversation that we're about to have. But before we do, I want to just say we decided to go with the original soundtrack version, the one that was released by MCA in 1992, because that's the one most of us grew up with. It's the one that's most commonly available. And it's the one that if you, you know, mention the Alien 3 soundtrack nine times out of 10, that's what people have. The full film score has been released in a few different forms, most notably just last year on this incredible CD, which is one of my like prized possessions. It's a La La Land release that was limited to 3,500 copies, and it includes an incredible amount of material. The entire original film score, um, some alternate takes from the original film score, the 92 MCA, some alternates. It's just got absolutely everything. And if if there are any of these floating around on eBay or something, I I recommend if you love the score, pick it up because it's incredible. And we might revisit it and talk about the full score at some point. But for now, for tonight, uh, we are going to focus on the OST from 1992 released by MCA. So as you mentioned earlier, um, the score starts with and this actually isn't on the soundtrack, but it, it's there when you watch the movie. So I'm going to include it. It, it starts with something that is unmistakable. Which is the fact that Alfred Newman's iconic Fox theme, the fanfare, gets reworked. Which is something that I feel like now we see it more often, but but back then that was like such a shock for people um it of course rises up as it normally would and then it holds that penultimate note it doesn't resolve the final note and it spirals out into this dissonant soundscape so from the very beginning of the movie you're being told this is new this is different this is a vision of alien that you haven't seen before yeah um again i heard that 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 first um the the fox fanfare and the the first note before i had seen the movie so it was it was very unnerving it was it's very much like this is not going to go well you and know? it's still it still is even though we've seen it a million mm-hmm. times when i turn alien 3 and mm-hmm. i still get my skin crawls for a second mhm mhm and it's not so much a scary film i mean i think there's a that one moment with uh, ripley and the the beast coming next to her that moment continues to scare me um, but even though we know how it's going to go, like you say, it's, that score does something to you that the other scores do not do. And that, that the way that they opened it is just, um, genius. It was brilliant. Brilliant. Totally. Um, 
I want to break apart the texture of what's going on after. So, 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 of course, after the fanfare, it goes into the Anu stay, which is which is not in the movie in the form that it appears here. But it's this is the way they chose to open the soundtrack. Um, and I want to just take like one second uh, to slow down and kind of break apart some of the stuff that's going on and the texture of the music, because I think it's really interesting. And he uses a lot of the stuff later in the movie. Um, the basic texture that you hear after this fanfare at the beginning of the On You Stay has a few layers to it. There's percussion. So there's um, there's uh, gongs and there's cymbals, some of which are processed electronically. Elliot Goldenthal works with one guy who does his electronic signal processing and does his synth stuff. So they work together to develop what kind of sounds they want. So he's been doing a lot of this electronic music, um, you know, for 30 years now. Um, so some of those are synthetic percussion. Some of them are real. So there's the percussion. Then there's these disembodied strings that are drifting along in this very slow melody, kind of ungrounded up in the stratosphere. And then, of course, there's a boy soprano. First as a solo, and then uh, with this sort of call and response antiphonal choir, right? And uh, they're singing, of course, uh, a melody of, of Agnus Dei, which is the Lamb of God, you know, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. A Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. A Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. That's, you know, being sung right at the beginning of the movie by this child uh, who's just sort of echoing out into the ether. And then, of course, that turns into the first indication we have of what I think is like the defining musical note of the score in terms of signatures, which is the brass. This is a score that is about brass instruments. And, um, of course, it's what Elliot Goldenthal has kind of become known for. You hear these growls, you hear these pitch bends, you hear instruments playing out of their normal, comfortable range with these extended techniques like flutter tongue. Um, where you're asking people to play into the wrong sides of the instrument. You're asking people to bend the instrument physically so that it makes a different sound. And uh, in that incredible otherworldly is uh, unmistakable right from the beginning of the score. Yes, and uh, I think I, as you're talking, I was realizing after the Fox fanfare, and then you have the opening, but right before the boy sings, right before that really clicks in, you hear that darkness. It's like it's like you can audibly hear darkness. It's that, and then you hear that doom. It is the first time I've ever heard darkness played through instruments. That's the only way that I can describe it. And it is, it is gut wrenching. It's like, it's also like your heart breaking. Um, and then of course, as we go into it, you see these flashes of what's going on with Ripley and Hicks and Newt and the Sulaco and it's tragedy. It's tragedy unfolding. Right. And we have this beautiful 
melody taking us through it. Yeah, that is that is centuries old. And and what's happening in the in the, in the film? You're right. Is it's just the series of tragedies that go by so quickly, right? It's just you get the bad news one after the other. You see the crashed pod. You see all these things, and it's uh, but it's treated with this incredible atmosphere of unsettledness. It's not treated with the sense of like loss and regret yet. That will come soon during the autopsy sequence. But at this point, it's just the dark. And I think part of why that drum note you mentioned that that sounds like darkness is because it's so muffled. It sounds like it's in another room down a distant hallway that you can't see the end of, but there's something enormous in there knocking on the door like fate, you know? I I, I really, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. So moving along to number two on the soundtrack, uh, we have Bait and Chase, which of course on the on the actual score happens way later in the film, but here it's put right at the beginning as kind of an early indicator of just how frenetic and uh, experimental this music is going to get. And the texture here is frenetic strings being played tremolo. So tremolo, I think we brought this up on the on the Goldsmith episode, but it's a, it's a technique where you're basically shaking back and forth really, really quickly. So it's like, and that that sound is used a lot throughout the score. That sound is used. And then also you hear in Bait and Chase the brass growling, these brrrr sounds, right? Those are two textures that kind of define this. You also have, every once in a while, the sound of a... And that's actually from a piano wire that they stretched across the studio and they were hitting it. So this incredible kind of disembodied shaking noise was actually uh, part of a deconstructed piano that was just taped across a room and they were they were plucking it like a like a guitar um and then of course you have the percussion which is just such a defining you know aspect of the score as well and it's asymmetric it's ametrical so in a lot of scores for example um i kind of wanted to bring up the horner score in this case when when james horner in in aliens is scoring an action sequence there is no doubt what the meter is and by the meter i mean if there's four beats in a measure if there's three beats in a measure when you hear right it's unmistakably yeah. a four right but when you hear bait and chase the drums are going there's, there's drums are just going and it's you have no yeah. you can't like shake your head to it right so immediately you're left in this disembodied i keep using that term tonight space where you're just sort of experiencing it as a, as an ocean of sound coming at you that has all these cues that you associate with action scores and with things that get your blood up but it's taken out of the context of predictability it's things that make you nervous or excited but without mm-hmm. anything to ground you in the experience mm-hmm. Um, and I think Bait and Chase, although it's kind of a minor piece of music in the scheme of things, is a great kind of early indicator of that. Yeah. And I think, again, it points to one of the beauties of this score that it's not predictable. And that, like you were saying with um, the score for Aliens, James Horner's score, it is predictable to some degree in terms of it's going to repeat itself the exact same way you heard it. Like you hear it. Oh, Literally, the cue was just reused way. many times. Yeah. 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 And of course, there's a story behind that in terms of uh, how long you had to make the score, blah, 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 blah. However, uh, it's pretty safe. It's pretty, um, it works for what it is. But the score for Alien 3 is not any of those things. It's not safe. It's not contained, 
which kind of is working on several levels because the beast is not contained either. So you have this score that is completely uncontained. I don't think it could even be played live the same way it was recorded. It could, you could do it. I don't, is there a live recording? Is there a live? Uh, I don't have it. It'd be interesting to see if there's a live, some type of movement. I think that I've seen, I've seen suites of it played live. Yes, before. me too. Yeah. Me too. And it's been fantastic, but it's not even, it just, takes hold of you and the film in a way that most scores don't um, where it's lingering. There's, I, I would also describe that track and the score itself as this linger. It's this linger where you hear these, maybe these chains rattling, maybe the, the strum of that, that piano chord, like something in the hallway. Something in the air shaft. Ding, 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 ding. You don't know what it is. Is it a flute? Right. Is it strings? What is it? Exactly. You know, right. And and you're listening because, because and that's was brilliant. And I was going to bring this up a little later, but I like that you're bringing it up now. What he does a lot of the time is he makes it kind of hard to tell exactly what the instrument is that you're hearing because mm-hmm. you're playing it in an atypical way. So you're playing it mm-hmm. higher than it's usually played or lower than it's usually played, or you're playing it using a different aperture, using your mouth differently. So you're hearing something that you recognize as like a trumpet. Like, you know that that must be a trumpet, but it has a plunger stuck into it and it's and it's being played upside down and it sounds like a wailing animal but a wailing animal that's also a trumpet right and as soon as you ask yourself that question what am i hearing then you're also as a viewer asking yourself what am i seeing if i can't hear the shape of what i'm experiencing how can i expect to see the shape you know and when that monster shows up and it doesn't have eyes and it's on the ceiling and it's cueing all of these things that are confusing me as a as a human um, I'm hearing the music of Elliot Goldenthal confusing me as a film goer, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so moving along, uh, the, the next track is The Beast Within, which I think is just extraordinary. This similarly takes place way later in the film than you would think by being the third track. The Beast Within is uh, what accompanies Ripley asking Dylan to uh, kill her. In the cue sheets for the movie, this track is actually called It Won't Kill Me, which makes sense given when it happens. And it's this long, growing, slowly uh, crescendoing um, thing over a pedal point of A minor. this beautiful haunting I don't know what I'm hearing it's amazing exactly and it slowly builds over time right as their conversation unfolds and as she decides she's going to turn around and hold on to the bar and as he raises the axe in the air it gets louder and more persistent and this entire thing is leading up to his axe strike coming down right um what Goldenthal's doing to emphasize this kind of this gradual accretion is he's setting a pedal point of an A. So you're hearing this consistent, this A. And then over that, these instruments are rising and falling on these big waves of cascading sound, which reminds me a lot of a piece of music that I shared with you uh, last year when we were working on Gethsemane, which is Contus in Memoriam Benjamin Britten by Arvo Pert.
And what you hear when you listen to the parrot piece is this similar texture of this building uh, music that's growing around this A pedal point. And it's this sense of beautiful inevitability. It's like watching a, a cathedral grow before your eyes or something when I listen to that. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's it's uh, it's haunting and um, unnerving. Absolutely unnerving. And that's the... Um, but then you have that... Like, yeah, there's something growing within. I mean, again, that's what the track is called. Um, so it's this, it starts off small and it's getting bigger and it's getting bigger. And it's, and the music itself is also taking form. Um, it's very strange how that he does that. The music is taking audible form as we listen to it. It is growing into a melody as we listen to it. That does not happen. And he made it happen. Yeah, that's a really cool way to put it. I love that. It, it's almost like it's 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 coming into the world in front of us. You know, mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid, this particular track was really frightening to me because I'd always turn it up super loud because after bait and chase, like you know, I was like I can't hear anything, and I would turn it up, and then as it got louder and louder, I would be like frantically trying to find the volume to get it back down again because it's almost it's almost like unbearable to listen to. Just like when he nearly you know takes her life, uh, it's 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 almost an unbearable unbearably poignant moment. And of course, is a huge shift for her character. But speaking of huge shifts for character, the next track Lento is one of my absolute favorites in this score. It's not my abs- It's not my number one favorite. But uh, it's it's definitely up there. It actually combines a few different moments um, in the film. So the first cue in the score sheet is was originally called "Appreciative of Your Affections," which I'm sure you remember what that's from. And then, yes. of course, after that, it goes into the cremation, which is just transcendently powerful musically, visually, narratively. Um, I think it's interesting that they pair the music of Clemens and Ripley with the music of Death and Rebirth. I think it works works really well. Yeah, Lento is Lento is a track that I when I hear it I just think of Ripley's journey, the tragedy of Ripley. That's the the track in the score that is this is Ripley's song. This is her swan song. This is the song of Newt and Hicks and Bishop and all of the survivors of aliens in the Sulaco. Like it's just devastating in its beauty and um I remember again hearing that that track for the first time before I had seen the film and just again this growing dread growing dread about what's going to happen because I remember telling people don't tell me what happens although actually I think I read this the comics those were the first comics I ever bought was for Alien 3 oh the Alien 3 Dark Horse comics yeah yeah when I was 15 so I was I bought it like a year before yeah um, which was strange that they even released them although I think that they waited to release the last one until the movie was out I think I could be wrong on that because they didn't want to spoil it which was weird they were releasing the comics before the film Um, but Lento just if you want to if you want to ask me a score uh, a track of this score that defines the film that encapsulates everything, encapsulates everything, I should say, is Lento. I agree 100%. The, the only thing holding it back from being my, my all-time favorite score cue of all time is because Adagio exists, which we'll get mm-hmm. to. But mm-hmm. Lento, honestly, for me, is just, you I, you couldn't have said it better. The way it starts with, of course, using the the music of love, honestly, although it's it's love amongst incredible loss. And so as you're hearing it, you're you're picturing everything that she's been through and just how sad it is. And yet she's still going. It moves so slowly. The melody unfolds so gradually. 
and it feels almost like a funeral dance, like a pavan. like marching forward into some sort of an unseen veil you know um and it's so tonal it's so in in a lot of ways this is some of the simplest music of the entire thing it's very melodic it's very clearly an a flat minor um it sometimes goes into d flat minor with a little flirtation with e major which is the uh, relative major key that of of a flat minor but and there's that's, a, isn't there a clarinet too yeah there's wind instruments it? exactly and then and then there's this cascading piano part And the, the piano part is what's actually making it for a little bit major in the middle of it. These clinking piano keys that are just kind of just just illuminating this triad up and down like ice falling in the snow. Um, and it's beautiful. And then, of course, in the middle of this on the soundtrack, you have the boy soprano coming back. So you have these strings playing this, this beautiful elegiac melody, the boy soprano echoing out in the middle of space, this piano part almost like being played by somebody down the hallway who's blind and is just reacting to what he's hearing. And then the solo, it's actually an English horn. Um, at least I, I think it's an English horn that's playing that melody, which sounds a lot like a clarinet. They're very similar. Um, and it's so clearly projected. You can hear it just kind of cutting through the ether. And then at, at nearly two minutes in, we hear the second part, which of course is a separate cue, but it flows really nicely into into each other, which is the cremation, which I, I really, I want to spend a couple minutes talking about this because to me the cremation music is just an extraordinary achievement in film scoring and i really feel like i know we talked about it a lot during the series and uh and i know that you know it it's just come up a lot because it's kind of iconic but i I really i really like honestly jamie i really feel like the cremation sequence in alien 3 is the strongest bit of filmmaking in the entire original trilogy and i i feel like it balances so many things so dexterously and it takes us to places that are so hard and so beautiful and it confuses us in that moment. It's overwhelming and the music is a huge part of that. It's my least favorite scene of the film. Of the film. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about, Jamie? I'm serious. Are you just trying to be argumentative? No, I am not. It is my least. I, I don't like that scene for you whatever reason. You don't like it's... the cremation? Yeah, it's a little too note perfect for me. It's a little bit too quickly edited again this is someone who thinks alien 3 is a masterpiece i Yo, don't you fucking like... hate alien 3 jamie <laughs> i don't like the scene um the music's great um and the music is of course echoed towards the end again um but i just don't like the scene i don't like the dialogue i don't like i don't like how it's cut it's just too a little too on the nose for me to be honest with you i'm serious I think you're fucking, I think, thank you for coming to your own podcast. That is crazy. But you know what? I will let you get away with it. You're a good person. I don't know why. I just, it's never sat right with me. I think. Um, you don't get chills when it, he says the promise of a no, flower. You don't fucking go crazy when he does that. It's too much. It's too on the nose. It's too much for you, huh? Um, here, But also with the cremation scene, it is hard to watch Newt 
and Hicks's body be thrown into that vat. I, I won't, I, I will not lie. It's hard to watch that. As much as I love Alien 3, her future is being tossed into the fire. That's why it's powerful to me. That, that's that's is, the it, exact it reason powerful. why. Um, it is so much, but I so much like, being lost at the same time I've, for her. I agree. I agree. I think it could have been done without uh, a speech. Um, now, I love the opening with um, Andrews. Their bodies. I, I love that. I love that. They commit them perfect. to the void. I do not like... Um, What's his name? Dylan. Speech. Dylan. Speech. I- that's. So I don't think it's bad. I'm not saying it's bad. It's I just, can't believe you're saying that. I. I yeah. It is. I, that's I my actual never favorite discussed. moment. That's fucking crazy, that's Jamie. This episode is derailed <laughs> right now by this. Sorry. I got to be honest. I don't think it's bad. It just doesn't work for me. I mean, that's it just that's okay. Feels but... too note perfect in a world where she's in that is not note perfect in a world that's grimy that's after her. It just felt a little too easy. It felt too easy. It was too nice of a. It was too nice of a burial for me. But the thing is, I mean, I, I would, I would agree with you if, if there weren't at the same time this horrible event happening of an alien being born, of the inevitable darkness coming, yeah, of this animal being ripped think, into pieces. I think part of my problem, though, is you have this woman who's a threat to everyone she's around, and all of a sudden they're going to throw her a funeral. Oh, okay. It just didn't work for me. That's well, the only part but of the it, it's because it's work. a religious order and because they treat death very seriously and because these are two bodies that were contaminated as far as they were concerned. And but they that to be big action does not match up to their small reactions to her when they see her. Um, their malcontent contempt. Um, I don't think they're doing it for her. Whatever. I, I, I don't I don't think that it's like a service for her. I think she happens to be there. I, I think that they're, they're doing it to dispose of the bodies. And because of who they are, I, I mean, Fury 161 is this outpost in the middle of absolutely nowhere, populated by people who have been left behind by everything that they ever knew, who are mm. in, in that darkness turning into this monastic, uh, dark religious, you know, ecstasy. And in the midst of that, there are two angels who have fallen from the skies and died. And these are angels who have no p- past to them. These are mm-hmm. they, they have no idea who they were, and they are committing them to the void because that's the only thing that they can do. That that's how they can exercise control mm-hmm. over this tiny bit of the universe mm-hmm. that they have. You know, I can totally respect that. Yeah, uh, it's okay. I, it doesn't work doesn't, for you. You're fucking yeah, wrong. Just, I wish okay. it did. I mean, again, the movie is my favorite movie of the Alien series. You know this. Um, I mean, Jamie, now that you've said this, I feel like maybe it's maybe it's not. I feel like maybe you're not a real fan oh, of the Alien Three. Oh, <laughs> 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 all right. Let's let. let I want we'll, to call you. We will come back name. to that. I want to call you by a name, but I'm not. I can't. What's with you? Not taking about not talking names tonight. What is this shit? <laughs> Listen, I think I think we just have our next. I think this is our next in defense of Alien Three episode. Okay. is going to be discussing the sequence because I, I I really truly mean it. Other than the derelict sequence, this is to me what Alien represents is the cremation sequence. And we can talk about that, but that's okay. Yeah. Musically. Yeah. I don't think it's bad. It just doesn't work for me. That, that's keep, fine. Keep going. But but, but mu- musically, uh, I, I want to talk for a minute because I just think this is just this is just some of the best music that Elliot Goldenthal has ever written. Music is beautiful. Um, so you have this A material that starts first, where we see the furnaces, right? Where we have the 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 vroom, all the instruments come roaring out. We see the furnaces firing up. We have this um, incredible C minor figure being played by the strings as they're kind of almost like a train bursting through the wall.
horns rising with the slow melody in the background, and then you have these incredibly hard hits on the drums, the timpani, the bass drums, like again, like fate knocking at a door. But whereas in the in the beginning parts of the soundtrack, this this door was distant and it was like echoing through the murk. This is like they're knocking on your head. This is this is this is this is an inevitability. And then Andrews offers his prayer, right? The music starts to calm down a little bit, and we get this the first real discernible theme of the entire score, which is So we have the music just settles into this very clear F-sharp minor. It's actually an open fifth. It's just this ancient sounding, almost primitive music. And over that, that moment of stasis, we have Dylan's speech, which... Jamie hates, but which I think is extremely <laughs> powerful. And as he and as he de- delivers the statement to the prisoners, as he talks about uh, what this death and birth represents to them, and it talks about hope in a, in a place where there is no hope, which is an extraordinary miracle. The this in the midst of that, this processed sound, which is unmistakable, starts falling through the air like a dark comet. And it is so haunting because it's symbolizing birth and death and life and, mm-hmm. and the end, right? And you're mm-hmm. hearing this incredibly stirring music start to bubble up from the fire. And then you're also seeing this montage of what's happening elsewhere. And those two things are combining visually, literally, with these cross dissolves and then musically by being layered on top of each other. And because of the way that he constructed this music, you have all of these simultaneities happening in a way where you can understand both of them at the same time separately, and yet together they create a texture that to me is the defining texture of Alien 3. Um, and then of course, as this sound falls like this comet, it descends into that alien texture that we heard hints of at the very beginning of the score. But now, mm-hmm. for the first time, at the end of the fourth track, we hear the alien. Because he's born, right? Mm-hmm. And the alien in Alien Three has a an uns- unmistakable sound signature. I would agree, and we're also hearing Ripley's death theme for the first time as well. And um, it's interesting how that same theme is, sounds completely different when she's dying. We'll get to that later, but uh, I can't even bear bear to hear it. It's it's just extraordinary. Um, so the alien in this is taking i think some some uh, inspiration from the alien music that was in goldsmith but with golden fall he does what El- what like elliot goldsmith what uh what goldsmith had done jerry goldsmith uh and just you know amplifies it all so the music of the alien is the music of complete chaos in this film it's the music of the of what happens you know in another dimension when you play a melody it's it's this music that's completely transfigured it's almost too much to perceive. If you try to break the texture down of what's happening towards the end of track four, you're going to hear a choir singing clusters. So this choir kind of singing overlapping music, sort of like the Georg Ligeti music we talked about 
um, earlier uh, on a previous episode from 2001 A Space Odyssey, you hear these string instruments that are screeching and sliding all over the place, playing behind the soundboard, playing, you know, playing like they're going to break. You have these brass hits happening Ametrically again, so there's no discernible meter to it. And then you have overtone singing. You have somebody doing that. So it's sounding like a human who's an inhuman singing more than one note at the same time. And all these, all of these things combine into this incredibly hard to decipher sound block that, um, is, it is the music of the alien coming into its own. And it is the ultimate alien because the real alien, right? And if if you're talking about alienness, is not something that we can recognize and think that's an alien. It's something we don't have a vocabulary for, right? And the music of the alien is music that we don't have the vocabulary to talk about. And I think that's part of why it's so powerful and so frightening. True. And one thing, uh, one small moment, I don't think that is a track. But it's just a small, I don't know if you would call it a movement or what, when you see Ripley after the funeral and you hear the shower and then you see the hand and you hear this, I don't know what sounds they are, I don't know what instruments, and she wipes the mirror and you see her bald. And the the instrument is moving with her hand and it stops when it reveals it. Yeah. I don't know what that is, but it's, a sh- it's not... It's not score, it's not sound effects, but it's sort of both. Um, it's profound, but it's not in the, it's not. No, is it in the score? It's in the full it's score. The, yeah, It is, it is. Yes, yeah. it is. Um, but not in the soundtrack. It's just this great, small movement that um, you don't see. I mean, sometimes you see that in movies, but it's just this reveal. It, it's revealing a new Ripley. It's revealing this this character in a way we have not seen her before um, where she's just a number Ripley, our savior, our mother um, is just a number um, who has lost everything, who is falling into the pit of despair emotionally, physically um, in every way. Um, and that little moment reveals that. It's so powerful. And, and this is another reason why I really recommend people who, who have access to it, Get the full um, original score because it's it's full of things like that. And when you listen to it, you can you can hear movements from the film that you you will recognize, like when they're lighting the candles, for example. And it's and it's it actually you know it's actually part of the music of the film. Um, so speaking of lighting candles, the next one, uh, track five, is "Candles in the Wind," which is one of the only times in the soundtrack where it's actually the same as the film cue. It's the same moment in the movie, and this similarly to uh, things like. Uh, uh, what, what was the one I was thinking? Bait and, bait and Chase is all about texture, right? It's just this incredible building up of sounds. You have these glassy sounds, almost like uh, glasses being rubbed with uh, water in them. Against these huge vertical walls of strings, and they're pulsing like a heartbeat. Right? They're opening and they're closing, just like the hallways of Fury 161, almost like they're alive and they're breathing, right? I really feel like the music at the beginning, the first like minute and a half of Candles in the Wind, track five, to me is the music of the prison. 
coming to life almost as its own character. It's if I would think of the word dystopia, it would be that track. It would be this hollow, empty other world of this. It feels like depression. It feels like the reveal of nothing, you know? And I don't mean nothing in the sense that, oh, it's nothing. I just mean like everything because you don't know what you're hearing. You don't know what you're hearing, but it's creating this, this spectral of sound where you're in this cavernous, almost like they're in the derelict in some ways. In some ways, it is a big derelict. The whole the whole planet's a derelict. There's some people in there, but it's derelict, you know? And um, Candles in the Wind, of course, it's setting up something very nefarious and insidious and terrifying, but you start off with these guys in this tunnel do sort of doing the things that they do every day, and it's just... Their life is nothing. It is nothing. It means nothing what they're doing. Um, and the, the sound captures that really, really well. There's another score that, as we continue to talk about this, there's only one other score that I've ever heard of and I listen to all the time that Alien 3, to me, matches. What score do you think I'm talking about? <laughs> That's such a broad question. No, it's not. What do, you, what do you mean matches? Um, Tonally, textural. You mean kind text, of sounds in like? Terms of texture. Yes, where it's creating... An entire world audibly. But not by Elliot Goldenthal? No. Unmistakably. It's unmistakably this film. I mean, Blade, Alien, Blade Runner obviously yeah, would be an answer. Yeah. Is that what this you're thinking score, of? Yes. Oh, yeah, right. Of this, course. Okay, good. This score is cr- as textured and as, Oh, 100%. Of course, it's not synthy like, like Blade Runner. It's a whole different world. The score for Alien 3 is the only other score that takes me into a world the same way Blade Runner does. Yeah, and that's why those are my two favorite film scores because they're the only two scores that I know of where I, a world comes to life that doesn't exist mm-hmm. anywhere else in anything, yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, you can emulate both of those scores all you want to, but they're never going to happen again. They're unique, you know, and they're and they they encompass everything. Um I totally agree with you on that. Um at about a minute and 30 seconds into this, we hear, again, the, the alien music coming back. And this time, it's even crazier than it was before. And uh, uh, something to pay attention to in this second part of this track is the techniques going on in the trumpets and the brass instruments, because they're all plunging various types of mutes into them, and they're doing these finger glissandos, and they're playing all of these pitches that sound like shrieking birds, and they sound like distressed animals, and they don't sound like trumpets. But what's interesting, though, of course, is that, you know, a wind instrument or a brass instrument is producing sound almost the exact same way that we produce sound when we talk or when we sing or when we scream, right? They're blowing air into something that's vibrating, right? So when you hear a trumpet making that sound and screeching out of control, there's something so human in it, other than the fact that it's also being played by a person and you can hear their breathing going on through it. But by taking these, these organic acoustic instruments and playing them in such an extraordinarily violent and otherworldly manner, um, it just, it's, it does something to us on a subliminal level that's just incredible. And it reminds me a lot of experimental music from, uh, mid 20th century Europe. And I think Flight of the Bumblebees. (laughs) Flight of the Bumblebees. I'm serious. That a little bit. Yeah. That's like insect. It it reminds me of an insect. Yeah. 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 of Of an insect being chewing on their food. Um, like, being in their mania that insects are in terms of hunter gatherers 
Um, it just reminds me of the insect that track as the track moves on. It starts off very haunting and hollow, like we discussed, and then it turns to this. Da, 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 you know, it does. It's, it's, I totally agree that it sounds insect-like. I'm, I was laughing because like "Flight of the Bumblebee" is such a like a cute little <laughs> piece of music. But what you're saying with these very fast figurations with the those things, those yeah, those are like lip glissandos, for example. So so the trumpet player instead of playing. And it's it's coming mm-hmm. out indecipherable because it's so fast the instrument can't really transmit the sound clearly. You know what's interesting about this score? I would have loved to have seen how they made it because you can't write this. You don't write this and say, "Oh, do this." He has to be there saying, "No, try this. This is what I'm going for." For right? some for some of it, but you, you 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 can write those things. I write those things, and and he did too in the score sheets. Yeah. So for example, you would okay. indicate, for example. Um, a, a lot of this stuff is indicated with um, like some stochastic elements, so some kind of chance-based stuff. So you give people a few options to take and a, and a little bit of time to try to make those options in, and you say, okay, go for it, right? So that what comes out isn't something you can notate metrically. You can't say this is you know 12 16th notes, but you can say within 20 seconds, play this many pitches as many times as you can get them out, right? So there, So that element of chance is exactly what you're saying. It's something that you can write it on paper and it can be what you think it might be, but until a, a human interacts with it, it's not going to be what it actually was supposed to be all along, which is something completely um, alien and impossible to replicate, you know, via a human notation method. Um, so yeah, so it, in, in a way, you're right. A lot of this kind of depended on people in studio and who showed up for the session taking chances and doing crazy shit with their instrument. You can also hear very clearly um, the strings are being played in- interestingly in the second half of this track. They're being, for one thing, they're being plucked. They're being played pizzicato. Um, but in addition to that, which is in itself kind of a strange technique, although it's very common, they're also being played beyond the playing surface of the instrument. So they're being played up by like where the tuning pegs are. <laughs> they're playing, mm-hmm. played behind the bridge. They're very harsh. Very <laughs> harsh. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's this, yeah. these crazy little bubbling sounds that, um, again, they come from instruments you recognize, but they don't sound like the instruments you know. Um, we can move on a little bit. I know we're kind of uh, taking it slowly here, but there's a lot to talk about. Um, wreckage and rape to me is the worst part of the soundtrack, so I don't need to spend too much time on it. But I will say that I love the uh, the wreckage part. Right, this is of course the music that accompanies when she goes to get Bishop, um, and uh, it's it starts with this uh, this thing that kind of reminds us of the, of the cremation music. This noble melody of the strings and the winds, and then the brass do their thing. Um, and it's very kind of noble. And then, of course, the prisoners show up. And to me, this is the only moment in this entire score that feels like it came from the early 90s. And I just kind of cringe every time I get to the rape scene. I'm like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. I would. It almost has a... Um, there's something... Reminds me a little bit of Nine Inch Nails about it. <laughs> right. I'm serious. Like, I could almost see, like, I could almost hear a little bit of Hart's Filthy Lesson in a little bit of it. For whatever reason, it is a little 90s, I, I would agree. Well, I mean, it's the same things that Trent Reznor uses, right? It's It's got, there's synth, and then there's electric guitars, and it's kind of a dark rock track. And, like, and there's nothing wrong with Nine Inch Nails at all, but mm-hmm. it sounds like Nine Inch Nails. And, and when you put that in the context of a film that gives you so few other things to, like, hang it on, like, there's so few other things that any of this sounds like. And then you have, like, basically, like, a, a dark synth rock track from the early 90s all of a sudden. It just takes me out of it a little bit. Well, it, what's interesting about that track is it's hard to listen to 
it's hard, it's like bang like like and there's sounds like guys going screaming like ah! you know like it sounds like screaming and there i think there's like moaning not like sexual moaning but there's like all these things being layered and it's not pleasant to hear but i think it's sort of saying yeah it isn't pleasant to hear like it's very it's very interesting i don't not like it um i don't i've skipped over it a few times but that's the only track i skip over yeah me too it's just it's the one where i'm like yeah okay i don't i don't need to hear it but i think if, if i think part of it is because all of the score i mean like literally the entire rest of the score is never one thing it's never like just an elegy and it's never just attack music it's always these combinations of things and i really feel like the rape sequence music the attempted rape sequence thank god is um it's like very clearly just sort of aggressive kind of you know hyper masculinized early 90s kind of rock music that i'm just like not not crazy about but it's okay because it's over quickly and we don't have to worry about it and then we get the first attack track seven which um is just a it, it is just it, it leads into what i think is like the most overtly menacing music in the entire thing and i fucking love it i love when elliot goldenthal gets scary and of course, you can't have scary without the sweet first. So the the track starts at the beginning with the the alien music, this obscured music, but being played by really high, soft instruments. So you hear it on the flutes, you hear the clarinet, you hear a harp strumming. Um, and it's all these very high notes that are all kind of interweaving at different rates of speed with each other on these unison pitches. And so even when you hear what might be a B natural, for example, you're also hearing echoes of something closer to a C and closer to a, an A sharp beneath it. Um, it reminds me of Peter and the Wolf. There's something oh, interesting. About, interesting. About just a little bit of the beginning or of a certain track in Peter and the Wolf where it's very, you know, um, yeah. where it's it's not... Like he, maybe he can see the wolf, but you don't know what he's seeing. It's mm. very, it's very interesting. Interesting, yeah. And and it's of course uh, worth noting again that that Prokofiev was an influence on Goldenthal. He, he brought him up in that quote that I read at the beginning, right? So you could be totally right. It might have been influenced by, by Prokofiev's music. Um, to me, the beginning sounds a lot like Bernard Herrmann's music. It sounds like something that might be in a Hitchcock film. Um, it's got that same kind of that that's kind of uh, that lurching suspense. It's it's sort of it's okay with sounding suspenseful. I feel like a lot of the time Elliot Goldenthal's music sounds like it presents a number of things at the same time, and you kind of what you hear in it, it's sort of like a Rorschach test. The music at the beginning of the first attack to me is suspense music. It's music that, like you were saying, it's sort of there's something lurking in the in the shadows. Um, in the context of the movie, the music that you're hearing, do you know when it happens? Can you think? It's okay if you if you don't know offhand. It's totally different from where this happens in the soundtrack. Uh, no, it's later on. It's when they're um, hunting it. No, but, well, that, that's that's being, later. They're 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 the bait, right? No, no, not not, not yet. What it actually is, it's the music that plays when the inmates are peering into the escape pod. After it crashes, and they see the they see the uh, they see uh, Hicks and Newt, and they see Ripley laying in there, and they're kind of peering in. Their heads are coming through the window, the porthole. Mm. That's the first cue that we hear at the beginning of the first attack, which is completely out of order from where it is in the soundtrack, but it's interesting and it flows well. Mm. 
Um, and then, of course, it shifts to like maybe the most iconic music in the entire film, which is when Clemens is killed and then Ripley gets pinned against the wall by the alien. And we get that shot that has been replicated a trillion times. Um, and I just feel like that is, so, it is so menacing. It is insane. You have these rattling, buzzing brass things that are going on that, that get louder and louder. And then all the drums smash them at the same time, like a hammer. You have these distant string clusters, like there's hundreds of string players out in another, in another room somewhere and they're screaming. You have the alien theme coming back, but here it, everything is louder. It's more indistinct. It's more menacing. And you have all these instruments being played way too high or way too low. And basically, it's the music of screaming. It's the music of agony, but channeled, right? It's the music of controlled agony. And that's what the alien sounds like to me when Elliot Goldenthal makes the alien. Yeah, yeah. Well, that last sound uh, where it sounds like something's running by. Boom, boom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What is that? What is that? It's How a, is that made? It's a whole pile of different things. Okay. It's it's a um, it's a huge number of instruments. I rem- I remember hearing that for the first time and just hearing it, knowing okay, the alien is near. It's just scary. It's really really scary. It is so and scary. They, they really David Fincher and Elliot Goldenthal really were able to make that creature scary again, in some ways. Um, the way because the curtain had been lifted with aliens in an incredible way, obviously. Um, but the music really dropped that curtain again. And the music was saying, where is it? It could be anywhere. Um, and that track specifically really like this thing is passing you in the night. It's passing you in a corridor. That's what it sounds like. It's brilliant. Totally. And there's no, there's no discernible shape to it. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm literally a, a composer and I can't even tell you what's making a lot of those noises. It's something that even with training and with a lot of practice, like there's some things I can't figure out. And, and if, and if I can't do it, then just a casual film goer who hasn't been trained in writing music, like how are they supposed to know what's going on too? It is the music of complete mystery. It is, it is something moving in the darkness that has no shape to it. That could be, it could be right next to you or it could be so far away, but no matter what, it clearly is present. And I think that's like, what's so fucking scary. And then track seven ends with a cue that uh, we hear when Murphy's looking for his dog down the shaft, which is an interesting little, little, little tidbit. Yeah, yeah, very. Um, then track eight is uh, one of the, to me, another one of the really highlights of the thing. It's the lullaby elegy. Um, it starts with, uh, speaking of dogs and escape pods, it's actually, it begins with the music of the dog approaching the face hugger, which is, of course, in the escape pod, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, after a, about a minute and a half of that, it moves into the music that accompanies the morgue sequence, which we talked quite a lot about on our uh on a few of our episodes earlier in this series but to me i really feel like the scene in the morgue is just uh it's just it's just so much and it's so well done
It is. It's this music particularly. It's interesting. Is this music is so understated yet so horribly terrifying and sad and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not just somber. The music itself is sounds like formaldehyde being pumped into a body. Like the music is very. It is not. There's no feeling in it. It's it's sort of you're in this space and it's your your life has been decimated and she's seeing it on a table. Her second daughter is now dead and she's on a slab and the music is just explaining that to us. It's explaining the 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 repulsiveness of this scene. The repulsiveness that Ripley is now back in this place where she has lost everything. It's repulsive to her. Everything is repulsive. It is, everything is lost. Um, and the, even like Clemens and the other guy turned their backs to her. Cause she said she wanted some like, it, it, yeah, it's the music is really, it's not easy to listen to in this scene. Even though it's beautiful, I totally agree with you. It's not, it's not easy to listen to because to me, it sounds like, uh, it sounds sort of like drowning to me. It sounds like music. It's mm-hmm. like seeing something beautiful, but knowing that it's on the other side of water and that you're falling away from it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it reminds me of like in Get Out. You know, of the of the falling place that where the where the lead character keeps getting sucked into that moment where he's falling down into the floor and he's looking yes, up and he's yes. seeing things and the, and it's getting further. That that's what this music sounds like to me because I mm-hmm. could, you can still recognize what you're seeing. You can still see it as something melodic and something beautiful. You can still see it as something with like a discernible outline, but it's getting farther away from you and there's nothing you can do about it. Because when she's looking at Newt on that morgue table, it's terrible and it's and it's depressing and it's so difficult, but it's still Newt. It's still the body of this girl that she had grown to love and to cherish and to protect. And she's seeing that girl, but it's through a, a prism that is so terrible, right? So the music is on one hand beautiful. You have this really slow, ghostly melody on the piano and it's dovetailing with these long disembodied notes on the strings. But then harmonically what's going on is you have the music, and and this is something that I didn't pick up on until this last time when I was listening and taking notes on it. It's the fucking alien music playing, but it's being played by instruments that, and in, in such a way that it's actually really relaxing. So you have this almost all of the instruments playing this backing harmony here are playing either a C or a B at any given time. And they're going between those two at different rates of speed so that you're basically just hearing this semitone, this half step that's a kind of settling in like a cloud. And of course the alien music is the same thing. It's all of these pitches that are close to being the same with each other, but because they're so transformed and because they're so obscured, they become this like this, this dark cloud that settles in. And the music here, if it were played louder and by brass instruments and faster, you would hear it as the music of the alien. And so you have this this melody of Newt and the Lost being played against the backdrop of what's actually the alien who is actually already coming. And what's interesting, too, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know what the music's saying? It's saying to Ripley, you lost her. You lost her. You saved her and you lost her and she is dead. What good are you? What are you even doing? 
Like that to me is what that music in that morgue is. It's like, you're fucked. Like, who are you? Who are you? You're nothing. It's take. Yeah. It's just really, it's hard to even talk about. Um, uh, the music is almost mocking her. You know, it is, and yet it's still beautiful, which is so infuriating. Yes, it's, it's yeah. right. It's it's because Ellie Goldenfall is is his music is so many things at the same time, and it can make you feel so many different things when you're watching it. If you're if you're listening to it out of the context of the film, what you're hearing is this kind of austere, cold, haunting lullaby almost. But knowing what's going on in the movie, you know that it's 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 the it's the turn of the screw for Ripley. It's fate pressing down into her and breaking her apart it's just fucking amazing it's just it's just i i it's funny as as we were talking about it on this episode i feel like alien 3 is becoming my favorite in the series <laughs> like it's it's always been really close to alien but i really feel like there are there are yeah, just i feel like so watching many, it tonight afterwards actually there are so many dimensions to this film and i just absolutely love it let's 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 wrap this because we're getting we're going on for a long time the next one is really quick we, we don't have to talk about it but it's death dance which um, it starts with bait and chase material that actually in the film is uh, it comes from after the section when Waylon Yutani arrives before they trap the creature before all that stuff happens and it's just uh, this you know great frenetic material similar to the other things we've heard earlier the kind of action cues here it's doubled by a xylophone which is kind of a cool sound and and I just wanted to briefly mention that Elliot Goldenthal's approach to orchestration along with uh, he he also you know works with an orchestrator too but the way that he orchestrates his music is never simple and it's never predictable when he does doublings at octaves he'll pair really really high instruments with really really low instruments and then nothing in the middle so it's almost like you're hearing like a like a tectonic plate moving he does these crazy doublings and these crazy sounds even when he does simple and quiet music and this is a great example of that he chooses of all things a fucking xylophone which is what you think of when you think of like a circus carnival you know and -hmm. it's playing this menacing melody with all these brass and strings yeah this track though there's a little bit of hope in it though there's a little bit of it's frenetic and it's all over and it's chaos. I mean, it sounds like audible chaos, but there's this melody or there's something that's coming up in it that I'm like, maybe there's hope here. Maybe there's well, hope. And, and in the context of the like, movie, there is, right? Because they're doing yeah. something, right? Like mm-hmm, they're trying to trap mm-hmm. the creature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're right. Even yeah. though it's terrifying and even though like it plays as this like crazy frenetic music, he still writes in that idea that – and that's because he had a year to fucking understand this movie, you know? Mm-hmm, he had – all mm-hmm. when, when you score a film, you're given six weeks to do it. And that is impossible. That is a terrible, terrible reality of Hollywood filmmaking and, and what it's what it's become because it really – it hasn't always been like that. But I really feel like now the, the production schedules on these things are so aggressive and the budget is so tight – and the amount of shit you have to get out is just so vast that, like, you just have to have a whole team of people working on something for a really short amount of time. And if there are ideas in there that work, it's great. And if there's not, you're going to get a lot of droning music that's just going to kind of sit there in the background for seven minutes with a couple of drum hits in the middle. But Ellie Goldenthal approached this as a serious composer given a year to sit with the story. And so for him... The death dance music, which is a scary action cue, is also, as you're saying, a moment of real hope because all of these men who are just trapped in the middle of fucking nowhere and have nothing left, they have something now. They have a purpose. They have a drive. They have a direction. And that direction is literally running down a hallway trying not to get killed. But that is a direction to run in. And the music sounds like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I mean, those it does. It it sounds like that, and of course, this is so. There's two different scenes, or there's two there's two acts in this. What's happening in terms of they're using fire and all? They want to like do the, and then it, of course it all goes awry, and they can't do it. So then they have to then use themselves as bait, um, which is interesting because you have these two scenes where. Um, Ripley is like, oh, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then that's that doesn't go well. So then the next thing is, well, what can we do but use ourselves? Um, and there's a moment, this track is really underscores this shift in this film where you feel like, well, maybe, maybe they're going to do it. Maybe they're going to, maybe they're going to win. Maybe they're going to get this thing. Um, it's short lived. But uh, yeah, I just, I love those moments. The moment of audible hope that you hear. And that, and that you and that you see you see it on the prisoners' faces you see it on the prisoner Jude's face when he turns around like you see the fact that they feel like um like they might win at one thing mm-hmm. in their whole fucking miserable lives that like mm-hmm. this is something they might do right you know mm-hmm. the transformation that the that the side characters go through in this is also so profound and we never take a, a moment to talk about it because the movie is so Ripley centric obviously it's so important that Ripley is in it and because Dylan is such a charismatic character but all of these other yeah. prisoners like you think about the the trajectory that their lives have had that they're rapists and murderers you know and and that they're the worst of the worst and that through redemption and through learning and through fellowship they somehow transcend that and they come together and instead of um, allowing death to happen, they try to stop it. They try to save each other, you know? There's something beautiful about that. Um, yeah. So moving along, track 10 is The Visit to the Wreckage, um, which is actually, it's the music that uh, in the score is, the original cue is called I'm Not One for Begging. So it's pretty clear what this is from. It's Dylan's music again. <clears throat> and um, and this, I think, is the first indication of like a real clear musical theme that we get, which is I think that Dylan's theme is the music that you hear here. It's that rising music, sort of like the Contest in Memoriam Benjamin Britten, over mm-hmm. that pedal point. It's, that, it's the music of a slow hope building like a mountain, you know, assembling itself. And um, it's almost the same music that we hear earlier during The Beast Within when, when he's raising the axe behind Ripley. Um, the difference here is that as that music builds... It ends. This one ends with the bass drum hits then coalescing into a battle cry, right? It ends with the the drums of war. Because instead of just this, you know, moment of uh, near loss of hope, it's now a moment where they have a direction to run in. Like I was saying before, they 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 can do something, and they're going to fucking do it. They're not going to die begging. Yeah, it's very poignant. Um, it's interesting how you can hear the same theme again, but it be, it's completely recontextualized, and so it sounds different, even though it's for it's a similar theme. Um, yeah, it's it. It's Ripley's death theme in some ways. And you think maybe this is this is it. Maybe she's... And so we have to make peace with Ripley at this moment. Like, I remember seeing the film and thinking, holy shit, this is it for her. This is it. She's about to go out. And you hear this music and you're like, no. And then, of course, it doesn't happen. But that music then is turned into the ode to Ripley, the elegy to Ripley. 
um, but then it quickly becomes something different. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> so moving along, track 11 is Explosion and Aftermath, um, which of course is, you were, just, you were just mentioning it a couple minutes ago. And in the movie, this is when the match gets dropped and it ignites all the fuel, uh, which is obviously a huge problem <laughs> on many levels. And the music that accompanies this is just so thrilling. It's You have these rippling mm-hmm. strings playing these rapid arpeggios up and down a D-flat minor scale. You have um, these booming slow motion brass uh, instruments playing this melody that's just singing out like a chorale. And you have these shrieks of trumpets and French horns um, that in my notes I wrote, it feels like flesh being torn apart. It's completely amusical. It's just these noises that are ripping through the texture so quickly ascending upward as the strings are going downward. And and the feeling to me is really like being torn apart. It's so frightening. And then it's followed by the aftermath cue, which is once the fire is contained, the sprinklers turn on, and the prisoners are just left in complete dumbfoundment. And you go from one of the densest textures in the whole thing with the explosion to basically as sparse as the textures in the film get this extremely simple almost like a hymn chorale being played by the strings as everything settles down and the fire goes out and the prisoners realize what the gravity of this moment is Yeah, it's uh, it's a very again one of those tracks that's hard to listen to because you they failed, they failed stupidly, stupidly because they didn't watch what they were doing. They were stupid about it. Of course, I mean the alien was up there for sure, but they just weren't paying attention, and um, they they could have had it. they could have killed it, but they didn't. And um, and then it's interesting after afterwards and you see in the film they have like a uh what do you call it like a cart it's almost like a bring out your dad sort of thing it reminds it's very um this whole that whole scene after the explosion after there's all the prisoners that have died it reminds me of something you'd see and hear and feel in medieval times it's very medieval it's very um because they're using fire they're using very basic things that's all they have that's as close to a weapon as they've got right yeah, um, and then, unfortunately, it, it ended poorly, and um, a lot of lives were lost, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, and it's interesting how, of course, we never saw any of these prisoners commit the crimes that they committed, but you can tell by the way that they act, they're the scum of the earth, but at that moment, you feel loss for them, and um, that's why I always, I will always contest people saying, oh, they're these nameless faces of people who you don't care about. I I care about I care about those prisoners. Maybe because I'm emotionally invested in the film, even though the film is Ripley's film more than any film. It is her film. It is about her period end of story. But you feel for some of these prisoners. You you know, you feel for the walls closing in on them in a place where the walls have already closed in on them. They're closing even tighter. Um and they keep closing and keep closing. And what's interesting about this track is they're that you hear it again 
but then you hear it with a different part. We'll get to that. But yeah. Yeah, and I I feel like the the people who argue that the prisoners are like indistinguishable are just not really watching the movie because they all clearly through their body language, through their mannerisms, through the ways they conduct themselves, they have backstories, even though they all kind of blend together, which is the point because everything's brown and everybody's wearing the same clothes. Um, they're 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 individual humans, and and I think they're treated like that by the filmmakers. I, I really feel like they're given those little character moments that help them. Um, pop out a little bit so you see them as people even though they're yeah. broken and terrible right i think the problem is is people were so pissed off that uh ripley was torn away from hicks and newt they didn't care it's not yeah. that the characters weren't human it's that people didn't care they were divested they had divested from the moment they found out hicks and newt were dead so um and we we, we do that with films that we don't like if we they lose us it doesn't matter we, we won't see it because they've lost us that's I true, that and and right at the very beginning of the movie, in Prometheus, yeah, and yeah. right at the beginning of this movie, like everything that you could possibly lose other than Ripley is taken, <clears throat> right? I mean, I I, I can't, I, and I was seven when this movie came out, so like I can't say that I was you know in the theater having this reaction to it, but I can't even imagine what it would have been like to have been an alien fan for years and years before this, and then and then to show up and have a film that's you know taken the two most popular characters who aren't Ripley away. They, it's, you know, manhand, it's mangled Bishop and it's taking place on a, on like this ancient planet that has no, it's not like in outer space. There's no spaceships in it. There's none of the cues that visually we were kind of taught to look for. The previous movie was like, you know, an action thriller with space Marines and guns and explosions. This is like, this is like Bible study, but you know, in a nightmare or something, this is so different and it's so audacious. And that's why I love it so much, obviously. But I, mm -hmm. I really feel like I, I can, I can totally empathize with that, but I would, I would really challenge people if anybody who does not like alien three is still somehow listening to this episode to um to try to take it for what it is which is intentionally really hard and that's why as we've talked about many times the whole camp thing made me so upset is because like the, the loss that you suffer as a lover of this franchise at the beginning of the movie and throughout the film is so important because it, it's what makes it art it's what makes it hard it's what makes it something you have to work for. Just like the music mm -hmm. of the film is something you have to work for. It's something that doesn't reveal itself all at once. It's something you come back to years and years and years in the future, and you hear it based on where you are in your life in a totally different way. Um, mm -hmm. Just wrapping this up, the uh, the dragon is track 12. The music you hear in the beginning is the music uh, from when Ripley turns Bishop on, of course. And <clears throat> um, I just wanted to say a, a, a little moment uh, about overtones. So... You're hearing this texture in the beginning where you have those glassy sounds again, right? And then you have all of these uh, processed noises that are creating a texture that's really, really rich in overtones. Overtones are... And I'm, you probably know this. I'm sure some people listening know a lot of the things that I'm talking about, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. Overtones are the um, the parts of the sound spectrum that that are secondary to the note that you've pressed, the fundamental or the note that you've played, but they're out there floating because of vibrations in the air. So depending on the on which overtones are triggered, you have a different sounding instrument or our voices sound different because of the way we manipulate the overtones. But you can create sounds, for example, that will trigger many, many, many more overtones audibly than other sounds. So 
with a lot of synth instruments, for example, like with a, with a square wave or a sine wave instrument, um, it has a very specific number of overtones that it can trigger. With a lot of acoustic instruments, like a violin or a trumpet, depending on who's playing it and what space they're in, you might hear a lot of different overtones. And by taking um, acoustic instruments like those and processing them to bring more overtones out, you can create some really crazy effects. So what you're hearing in the beginning of this is all of these noises building up into this big agglomeration that would be invisible if they hadn't been processed. So you're hearing basically the music of the air moving around the pitches that you're hearing at the bottom. And that's what gives it this wonderful, again, disembodied, just uh, expansiveness that is uh, incredibly complicated. Even though it's very static and very slow, it's very haunting because it's music that's sort of haunted. Yes. And Ripley's talking to a ghost, essentially. I mean, it's Bishop, but it's barely Bishop. And um, it's a very interesting scene. It's uh, one of the most beautiful scenes in the film, I think where Ripley reconnects, we're reconnecting with a, with a character from Aliens. Um, and they're back into this sort of dynamic, even the banter. It's like, hey, this is Ripley from Aliens. She steps away from the Ripley um, in Alien 3. She steps away from the Ripley on Fury 161, and she becomes, for that five minutes, the Ripley from Aliens talking to Bishop the same way she talked to Bishop before, trying to find out information, trying to find out what's happening, trying to understand. Um, and then she pulls a plug and it's awful. It's awful. Um, and the music just underscores that perfectly. And it's awful, but again, it's cold. It's like the universe turns and it doesn't care. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's so difficult to hear that. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and also just the, the music that you hear at the end of that is, uh, is the music that you hear when Clemens is looking at the acid burn on the floor mm -hmm. and realizing mm -hmm. that something might be going on, that Ripley might have been right about a contagion. Um, that's that's how that cue ends in the soundtrack. Um, track 13, so going into these final two tracks, this is like kind of sacred ground for me because I, I just cannot, I cannot get enough of tracks 13 and 14. Track 13, The Entrapment, begins with music that we heard earlier during the first rumor control sequence. It's actually the same melody that uh, we heard during the cremation scene. Um, and uh, so that's kind of what's introducing this. And then at uh, about a minute and 50 seconds in, it transitions into the music that we hear when the alien is chasing prisoners again, that bait and chase music. And But this particular instance of it was actually Perfect Organism's outro music for like a year and a half. So and we still use it sometimes for our videos and... Yeah, I mean, yeah, we still so we still often. use it. It's it's become like one I of our it. kind of sound signatures for the show. And it's just it's it's just it's great. It's almost like a fugue. Um, which I'm not going to get into now because this episode's running long, but basically a fugue is music that, you know, the, the Baroque era, like, you know, the, the era of Johann Sebastian Bach was really defined by fugal writing. So you have one instrument comes in, it plays a melody, and then another instrument comes in and plays a melody higher or lower than the first time you heard it. And they kind of chase each other around in this kind of circular fashion where you have the same melody being played by different instruments at different places of the pitch spectrum. And it creates this this really interesting harmonic texture that you can hear kind of play out if you listen to the music of Bach. Here, 
um, it's not actually technically a fugue, but it's fugue-like in that you have all of these different string figures that are going on, and then they get added to by another string figure kind of answering it, and then it gets more and more complicated, and more of these entries are happening closer to one another until... Um, you know, by the time you get into the two minute range and later towards two minutes and 50 seconds, you get this really complicated texture of all of these intersecting string lines that are just going all over the place, almost like a creating this, this vast cloud of insects settling down, almost like a biblical swarm coming out of the sky. And then at two minutes and 50 seconds, it moves into this just legendary cue that you hear when the water turns on and the creature explodes. And it's just this radiant, triumphant really um musical cue that is is just unmistakable and i want to say something that i I noticed this time when i was going through and taking notes is that you hear the alien music one final time right before that happens right before you hear the music of the explosion right as as everything stops for a second and it's about to turn the sprinklers on you hear this trumpet coming through and a bunch of trumpets and they start trying to trying to disrupt that unison again you hear this And it's the music of the alien, but here it's just doing one final thing, and then it gets ripped into pieces by these cascading sounds of strings like waterfalls spilling from the heavens, almost creating a Jacob's Ladder effect as they go down. And it's just this incredibly dramatic, triumphant film cue that's triumphant without being conventional. And it's so hard never, to do that. Yeah, I, I've only heard water. How do I describe this? I've only heard water. Like, how do you say this? Um, I've only heard instruments to recreate water one other time in my life. Well, maybe two, and they're actually both by Enya. The first one is from her song Orinoco Flow, um, where you hear the do do do. It's plucking that plucking. There's something about that staccato plucking that sounds very much like water. And then she has a song called Caribbean Blue. And it starts with this low rise or whatever. And then you hear this. And it sounds like waves, like you're under the water. But this track 14 blows that like, it's like cascading water. I've never heard, heard cascading water recreated with, with instruments before. Ever, I never. I've never heard it. It's before. an incredible it's, effect, isn't it's it? It's my favorite piece in the film. It's amazing. Probably. And I, you know, actually, I should show you my undergraduate thesis was called "The Psychoacoustics of Water and Music," and it was all just different examples really? of orchestral music where they've credit. And of course, this was in there. Um, and I, I just, I think that the way that he presents it, because because it, it's. It's clearly melodic in a way, it, it, although it's like it's it's melodic on, on its own terms, right? It's it's all of these these things falling from the skies and, and building up like bubbling, like like you know cascades. And what what I love about it is that it is like it is so immediately apparent that it's triumphant and that it is climactic music and that it's the kind of music that you kind of stand up for and you cheer. But it doesn't sound like any other music that has ever done that before. And that's why I feel like Goldenthal is such a fucking genius musically, is that he's able to create these very clear emotional moments when he needs to in a movie, but he doesn't do it simply, you know? I love Hans Zimmer. I love John Williams. I love a lot of these kind of mainstream film composers, but there are Thomas Newman, who did the score to 1917, which I love. Um, what all of those guys do is that they have plenty of moments in their music where they're very clearly telling you, get excited, be triumphant, 
be sad. And the way that they do that can be incredibly complicated and beautiful, but it's clear that it's what it's that it's what it's saying because it relies on conventions we're used to. It relies on triumphant brass strikes and it relies on cymbal crashes and it relies on fanfares and it relies on, you know, big epic melodies. But the end of Alien 3 in terms of the the tri- the climactic triumphant moment of the film, it doesn't sound like any other piece of music I've ever heard, but it sounds mm-hmm. exactly like the triumph at the end of the film. It's just and it's it- amazing. And it makes you forget about everything in that moment with that music. We've done it. We've done it. We've been washed clean, right? That's why. We have. We have. We have been. Yes, we have been redeemed. Um, Sin has been washed away. We can live our lives now. Um, And we, uh, you forget that Ripley has an alien inside her, that what's going to happen with her. You don't, doesn't matter because the music and everything that we're seeing is working together so beautifully that we've achieved it. We've we've done it. We've killed it. It's done. And it's like one of those things where, yeah, where you feel like you can conquer the rest of the you can conquer life if you've if you can get over this. And they did for a minute. And I think that's the for a minute is the important part there, because there there is this knowledge, even in that moment, that there is this incredible cloud that still surrounds them on every side. But for that one second, they're in the sunshine. Right. For that one, even though even though everybody knows that the operatives are coming in. That you have Wayland, you have all of these, uh, these, and you have, of course, Ripley, who is any minute now going to be murdered by this queen inside of her. All of these things are just hovering around the periphery. But in that one second, you're right. The clouds part and you see that, like, final dream of things being okay. That final, that final chance for things to redeem themselves. And what's interesting there, we have not talked about this, is, the idea that sort of water is washing away the sin of the world, the great flood sort of cleansed the world. And who is doing that? Ripley is doing that. Ripley is washing away the sins of the world with this pull of this lever. She is responsible for it. Um, that's very, 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 very profound. Um, where this, you know, you, you talk about, you know, the, in the Bible, um, the spirit of God is also compared to water or, or again, like I talked about earlier, God moving over the face of the water or the way that in the Bible talks about God creating water first. So it's this elemental primordial thing that have, has always existed ridding the world of darkness. Water is ridding the world of darkness and Ripley who transcends space mom and goes to God-like um, this woman who is, led the way at every opportunity, not because she's wanted to, but because she's had to, because she's been forced to, because they've asked her to. And Ripley, let's try fire that didn't work. Well, let's try, you're going to have to use yourself as bait that didn't work. Well, can we trap it in there? Can we trap it in there? Does it work? Yes, it does. At every opportunity, it's Ripley who is saying, how do we do it? How do we do it? She's saying that from the beginning. How do we kill it? And she kills it. Again, um, just like she killed the queen, just like she killed, um, uh, you know, the big chap in the first one. And there she is again doing it, not because she's this like really not that Ripley isn't smart, but and it wasn't really her. They just said, Ripley, it's boiling hot. Turn on the water. But they needed her to do it. They saw the way and Ripley did it. And so that music in that scene for me isn't just what we're seeing it's divine 
It's, it's everything. Like, it's transcendent. It, it really it is. is. It's absolutely transcendent. It's euphoric. And, and, it, and yeah. it's just, it's such a testament to the film, but really to Elliot Goldenthal. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there's no other composer who would have said it like that. There's nobody else who would have gotten that from it, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I really feel like these two final tracks of the CD are just are just two of the crowning achievements in film scoring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. I feel like the end when you hear those cascades of water falling down, it is just it is just an astonishing achievement. And that leads us to my all time favorite film cue ever made, which is Adagio, track fourteen on the original soundtrack. Uh, which, which to me is just, um, I, I just, I, I don't think I've ever heard better film music than this. Uh, in the cue sheet, it's called "You Can Still Have a Life," which um, is kind of bittersweet when you think about it because of who says it to her in the film, and also the fact that, like, in some ways, you know, that could have been the case, but the reality is that she she did have a life because of what she does in the end of the movie, and her life meant something true, you know. Um. We have the string chorale that carries her up this platform. <clears throat> um, we hear that's the cascading figure from the sprinklers, but now it's being slowed down. It's unspooling. It's changing where it is tonality-wise. And we're still hearing this victory music, but it's slowing and it's becoming quiet and it's becoming personal. So all of the bombast of that waterfall is becoming this very quiet stream that's revealing itself as the top current of an ocean that we couldn't see. 45 seconds into Adagio, I am reminded of the track by Howard Hansen that you hear at the end of Alien where Ripley has blown the the big chap out the airlock and she's safe. She's alone, but she's safe. And I feel like 45 seconds in, it's a flip on that where it's instead of with uh, Howard Hansen's piece, it sounds like this progression towards comfort. There's this progression. She's floating out in the o- in the middle of the uh, space, but she's at peace. And this is a digression where it goes from comfort to no. No, no. Mm. Um, and it, it's it's hard to hear. It's hard because you know what's coming. Just like you know when when um, Deckard is sitting at Wallace's office in 2049, you fucking know what's coming. But she, And your heart's racing and your heart's racing. Um, and it's it breaks my heart. I, I can it's beautiful, but I can barely I, I can barely hear it. I can barely hear it. Yeah, I, 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 I cry every time I listen to this part. Yeah, it's Every hard, I don't. Time. I don't watch Alien Three a lot because I, I can't watch her die. I can't do it. It's so hard, and and it feels like such an and such an inevitable. And I can't say it. An inevitability, musically, mm-hmm. like what you're saying, but also just the way it's just the, the because you just know that that's the only way that this is ending, and yep. she knows it. And it's like you're on a roller coaster, and it's about to go down the hill, and you just you can't do anything about it. Like this is reality, and that's why Alien Three is so important. Mm-hmm. Is is it is so frank in the way it treats fate. It's so honest in the way that it treats the dark reality at the center of life, which is that it ends. I just think it's it's just so honest like that. It feels like a symphony. Um, at 122, we hear Dylan 
that we hear the Dylan theme coming back, that rising figure, that hope. We hear that, that building, um, figuration that we heard when he lifted the axe, that we heard when he inspired the prisoners, that we heard when he said he wasn't going to die on his knees. We hear that coming back again, and then as it goes upward again at 1 minute and 50 seconds, it stops, and it just sits there, and then we hear the cremation music come back. We hear that theme that we heard so long ago, and here it's indicative of the fact that we're about to witness another creation, another cremation, that another cremation is coming. And then before that has a chance to overtake the texture, just a few seconds later, the hope theme returns again, and it guides Ripley all the way up to the edge. And then my favorite moment of the entire film, musically, is when we hear what I consider Ripley's theme, which is just after two minutes and 30 seconds. And it's just, it's a combination of little motivic melodic fragments that we've been hearing a lot. It sounds recognizable to music that we've heard, but it's configured in a way that's new and that's different. And it creates a melody. It's this triumphant elegy for a hero. It's music to say goodbye to the film and to say goodbye to this character and to say goodbye to um, expectations that things could have been different and to greet a dark future with hope because Ripley has never lost that all the way to the very end. And we hear her melody for the first time. And, and to me, like, I consider that Ripley's music, even though it was the last music that totally. Ripley, as we know her, yeah. gets in the entire trilogy. Like, that to me is what all of her, all of her experiences were building up to, is that final triumphant musical cue. It just mm-hmm. shakes me every time I hear that. plays right into her you hear her final transmission on the narcissist and it is fucking devastating it is devastating to hear her voice again it's it's the best ending of a film i've ever seen that's my favorite um, ending too with um with the the plastic over the ship blowing and it's just dark oh my god i might have to watch that movie tonight it is just fucking phenomenal and that incredible huge triumphant explosive emotional music fades away like a wisp Right, And then Mm -hmm. we're left with just a whisper. We're left Mm -hmm. with a trumpet and we're left with a couple of instruments just sort of playing into the mist as she delivers that final, that final transmission. Yeah. And the movie just evaporates just like that transmission does. And the music does. And the statement that was impossibly grand and impossibly inspiring reveals itself to be just a shadow of the reality that we actually end with, that we end our lives with, which is darkness, which is Mm -hmm. uncertainty. And I just feel like, there are moments in great works of art where I really feel like people touch on the divine, you know, like whatever you define that to be religious or spiritual or otherwise. To, to me, music is that approximation of divinity. To, to me, that's yeah. that's sort of my you know religion in a way. 
and I really feel like the end of Alien Three is a is a truly religious experience for me. Every time I was I just going to say that I, I feel like the whole film is a religious experience. The whole film feels sacred and and important and urgent. It's an urgent story, and I, I I'm going to touch upon this in, in a piece I'm going to write, not just about the Alien series, but why sequels are important, why they can be important, and why good sequels feel important because they're urgent. It's a it's a they're the, characters doing new things experiencing new things and that's what ripley does and we don't want to see ripley go through what she goes through we don't want to see ripley um die and sacrifice herself and be be become what she's always feared which was the host of an alien but she does and that had to happen um and that's why Alien 3 is so brilliant, because it was bold enough to say, this is how the story ends, and we're sorry, but this is how it ends. And that takes some balls, takes some balls to do that. And it did it. And as we've been talking the whole night, you know, we've mentioned Blomkamp just a little bit, just, you know, I'm passing just because it was necessary. That film, under no circumstances, can be ever be made. Period. End of story. Um, Ripley was here. She lived her life. She did what she needed to do. We can watch her do it over and over and over. That's her story. And she ended it on her own terms, just like she yeah. always did. She was the ultimate survivor. This yeah. entire time, we watched her get everything taken from her and go through every single thing that any character could possibly go through. And she yeah. never lost the core of who she was, which was a warm, kind, brave woman who fought incredibly hard and never lost purpose and never lost a sense of her humanity and she went deep into the void completely whole and gives us hope that even when we are in that place in our lives when we are when we've had everything stripped from us when we have no idea who we are we still have ourselves and we still have love and we still have hope for the future and that is just it's just the movie takes us on that journey in such a profound way and and so my my announcement uh, is that as as of this episode it is now my number one favorite alien film I really Whoa. feel like this episode did it for me. I feel like I, I, I think yeah. that it is, it is the best that alien produced. I really do. Yeah. I, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I, I think we both sort of came to these conclusions, you know, me, I was hard Blumkamp supporter, like, let's do it. Um, but life can be hard. And I, I alien three cauterizes the fact that the original alien, alien trilogy is probably one of the most, if not the most profound science fiction trilogies ever to be created and released. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that those films turned out the way that they did. It's yeah. absolutely a miracle. They shouldn't exist, but they do because someone always drops the ball. They did not drop the ball. They had the courage to tell those stories. They had the courage to release a film where Ripley dies in the end, where Ripley's impregnated with an alien queen at the end, where Ripley loses her daughter again, where Ripley loses this possible love interest again, um, where she loses everything down to her hair. They had the courage to rip her apart, uh, proverbially and proverbially, whatever. And... (laughs) And I can't say that word tonight. And uh, physically, and it's the best thing. Uh, I, and, you know, people, and if people wonder why, you know, as we close this, because we need to, um, people wonder why, you know, I maybe come off a little bit snobbish sometimes about maybe the prequels or look at what we have to live up to. If it's not living up to that, it's not working. Um. 
that's a story for another time, but I'll wrap this by saying, at least my piece, this score is profound. It is stands next to Vangelis score for um, Blade Runner. Um, it's, it is in a class entirely on its own. There's no other science fiction score out there that is even remotely close. And there's some really good ones, really good ones that we'll maybe we'll talk about at some point, but uh, I'm so glad we had this episode and uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't think I could love alien three anymore. And here I am loving it even more. Me too. It's, it's fucking crazy. And that's why I'm so lucky we have this show in our lives. I really am. So yeah. thank you everybody for listening uh, and bearing with us. This is a two hour episode. Uh, and I've enjoyed every second of it. And I, I hope that that's come across and that you guys have enjoyed the journey with us. Yep. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.